You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's got 13 channels of shit on the TV to choose from. <laughs> it's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. I do. Uh, yes, I do have 13 channels of shit on the TV to choose from. In fact, I have about 685 million channels of shit on the TV to choose yeah. from. I learned a long time ago, Bill, this is a weird yes. oblique way of talking about, you know, sort of establishing and or maintaining happiness, is that I get overwhelmed with choice. So it's like the uh-huh. par- yeah. it's like paralyzed by options. And Right. Yeah, we've mentioned this before. We sure. have mentioned this before, and it happens with streaming services on TV. But I was thinking about this in relation to 13 channels of <laughs> on the TV to choose from. Having 900 some odd channels of television made it impossible for me to watch TV. Because part of me always thought, well, there's something better on somewhere else. I can probably find it. Now, I remember when we had 40 channels and my brother was notorious for like watching three to four minutes of something and then changing the channel. And it used to aggravate my mother so much. I think I think the doctor ended up putting her on like Xanax or something. <laughs> channel chance brought on by the remote control. And, well, yeah. I mean, I- well, she's from a younger generation. They only had like three channels. Right. Three channels. And they were on the radio. If you were, yeah. if you were lucky. <laughs> UHF, which was yeah. one and a half channels. I learned from my TV experience is the, is the best way to win the happiness game with TV is not to play it anymore. So I, I didn't cancel cable TV, but I made it just, I have just enough cable TV that my dog can hear a human voice when I'm not home. <laughs> That's it. I can put on C-SPAN with no TV picture and she can listen to people debate policy all day and she's perfectly happy. <laughs> Me, I'm at work, you know. For like streaming services, I I have to like really think about what it is I want to see before I go watch it. And it's getting to the point now where like I found myself doing the same thing with social media. There's a lot of ads. There's a lot of like pre-created content that people repost. And I found myself scrolling through it and just getting depressed. Like not doom scrolling, but like, "Eh, you know, I don't want to interact with any of this stuff. And rather than just sort of Marie Kondo my way out of it and like if it doesn't bring you joy, remove it. What I've done is try to focus my attention on other things. So I've developed, I've tried to cultivate happiness by doing other stuff. I don't know if you do that. Yeah. I know you do that with drawing, especially in the wintertime when it's 150 degrees below zero. Yeah, that's, I was actually thinking about uh, a lot of similar things today um, because I have my expensive new hobby, uh, the drone. Yes. Uh, and tomorrow in real time, I will be in a big open parking lot when I get there. And I was thinking about how Whenever you're flying the drone Mm -hmm. or whenever you're doing a drawing or whenever you're riding your bicycle or with me riding the unicycle or playing a musical instrument or whatever the case may be, whenever you're doing one of your hobbies, whenever you're recording a podcast Mm -hmm. or editing the podcast, that's kind of all you're doing. Yes. And or at least it occupies enough of your mind that you're not thinking about 
a bunch of stupid shit. <laughs> yes. You know? And when I say that, what I mean is, like, not only po- the political discourse in this country, which everybody hates, but everybody still participates in, not only does it keep your mind off of that, but it also keeps your mind off of, oh, that stupid thing I said 13 years ago that I wish I could go back and take back. Right. You know, it, it, it leads you away from thoughts like that. It does. Nothing, nothing makes me happier than to be sort of lost in a book or lost in listening to a record and want to immediately get up and start to talk about whatever it is that I'm reading or listening to with like my kid, my son, or my daughter. Right. And and have like a conversation about whatever this, this something is that's deeper and more meaningful than it would be if I was trying to write about it or trying to read about it on the internet. It's It's really funny to think about the connection that you have with people around those other things until yep. you, you, you really – realize that you're not paying attention to them. I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling and I don't mean to. Uh, but like I find myself doing a lot more things that are a lot more uh, not related to social media anymore. And I, it makes, you know it makes me much more happy, I think, as a person. Yeah. And you see that too. Now it's like infiltrating like real life where people are so used to arguing and going on the defense – because of social media that they like start doing that in real life. And it's like, you know, you, you kind of don't have to do that. Right. You can just walk away or you can get yourself an expensive hobby. Yeah. 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 Or go read a book, put yourself in somebody else's head for a while and, you know, sort of figure out what it's like to sort of, you end up practicing empathy by doing that because you're, when you're reading, you're reading someone else's thoughts, right? All right. Before we get the show started, I do have my very popular and always well-received uh, trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Uh-oh. Remember when you were a little kid? I, I I do. I was much littler and more kid. Yeah, I was. I was born at a very young age. Did you ever have a little red wagon? No. Have you ever seen a little red wagon? <laughs> <laughs> I do know what they are, but I've never had one of my own. We had one. It was blue. I don't know how that happened, but. Uh, it was about a knockoff. Yeah. The co- no, the company, it said Radio Flyer on it. The Little Red oh, Wagons okay. are made by a company called Radio Flyer. That company uh, was founded by a man by the name of Antonio Payson. Oh. Now. I remember the sleds, Radio Flyer sleds. Sure. Okay. Instant death sleds. Yeah. I used to call them as a child. You, uh, Chuck Yeager was fast, but he was not Radio Flyer. <laughs> now Potato Hill fast. Right. Yeah. So. Now, the Little Red Wagons did not include a radio, and true. they did not fly. As sold, as sold, right, they did yes. not fly. Yeah, yeah. You, you could get them over the ramp, I think, yeah. uh, and, and get, them, get, get, some, get some hang time. Right. So why were those Little Red Wagons called radio flyers? I don't know. I'm going to think about this for the course of the show, and I'll give you an answer at the end. All right. All right. So this is going to be the week beginning November the 14th, and it is your turn to start. November 14th, 1889, a reporter for the New York World, a woman whose pen name is Nellie Bly, is one of the first like world-famous reporters to work in the United States. Yep. Her real name is Elizabeth Cochran, but she writes under the name Nellie Bly, begins her sure. attempt to surpass the journey of Jules Verne's character, Phileas Fogg, by traveling around the world in less than 80 days. And she's successful finishing the trip in 72 days and six hours. As she makes this trip, she writes article after article after article for the New York world. It becomes a serialized story of her on boats, trains, in cars, on horseback, etc., going around the world. Nellie Bly was really interesting. 
She was the sort of first woman to really break the glass ceiling to get into newspaper publishing yep. as a reporter. Generally, that was considered men's work. But she was able to get in and originally, she sta- I think she started to write, I'm saying this with air quotes, women's articles. Right. But very quickly found a way to find a niche that she could do this sort of adventure reporting. And it was super duper popular. She became a superstar. I'm looking at this. Uh, she took a long route too. She, I mean, the the... Globe is roughly 24,000 miles at the equator, mm-hmm. and her trip was just under 25,000 miles. Yep. A straight line would bring you 24,000, so she kind of hithered and tethered here and there, yes. I guess. Wow, 72 days. That's, um. let me do the math. That's two and a half months, and in 1889, yeah, I mean, you could go around the world in about a half of an afternoon now, but, uh, <laughs> but in 1889... That must have been cool. I'm like, we've discussed plenty of times how much I'm a fan of the cross-country road trip. Yes. You know, just seeing everything. But just seeing seeing the world like that, that's uh, that's something. I don't even know technically this could be called a cross-country road trip because there were no cars yet in 1883. Right. I mean, uh, in 1889. Horseback, right. Right? And it would have been horseback and carriages. And once you get out of the sort of really civilized and urban areas in Europe, you're not riding on trains anymore either. So- it's trains, right. boats, and carts, kind of. Hot Maybe air balloons, bicycles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hot air balloons. Uh, the occasional experimental parachute or something. But <laughs> she was able to do that with the, the technology at the time, which is amazing. So Vern's story is not that much older than this ev- event. Vern was a science fiction writer. So right at the beginning, she's sort of breaking down the, the idea of science fiction in the real world. I, I think this is a wonderful story. Always, I always have found Nellie Bly really interesting. So just think about this. Without cars, without the luxury of you know real fast transportation, even still, she averaged just under 15 miles an hour. Yes. That's pretty good. So she must have found, I mean, there must have been some trains you know, but even then trains, you know, it's not like they had the bullet train. Right. I don't know if it's more famous of her exploits was she had herself. Well, she she was committed to a mental institution in New York City to write an expose on how bad the treatment of mental patients was in mental institutions in New York City. She was there for like uh-huh. two and a half months. They almost lobotomized her. Jesus. Yes. And she, she wrote this award winning expose on how horrible it was to be in a state run institution. That's like Dan Rather. I don't generally describe women as having balls of steel. Yeah, she had some clackers on that lady. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of groundbreaking ladies, I guess. <laughs> November the 15th, 1969, the very first Wendy's Hamburger restaurant oh. opens up in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, fans of this program will know that we've talked about Dave Thomas uh, in the birthday segment Yep, back, I think, in season three. Sure. I believe so, too. Yeah. Dave Thomas named the restaurant after his fourth child. You want to guess what her name was? Uh, Margarine. Well, you're not far off. Yeah. Her name is actually Melinda Lou. But for whatever reason, her nickname was Wendy, and that's what they named it after. Well, yep. if my name was Melinda Lou, I would want you to call me Wendy, too. Yeah. I don't see that. For the love of Christ, call me anything but. Right. <laughs> I will say that given the uh, you know the oft-described fast food franchise wars of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, I have a soft spot for Wendy's, one, because we didn't have them in New Bedford when I was growing up. Right. And I only got to eat at them when I moved here to New Hampshire. And two, their burgers were are still super good. Yeah. 
Now, there's one right up the street from me. I have a McDonald's, a Wendy's, and a Burger King. And none of them I, I visit very often. But whenever I get into... Uh, spoiler alert, we don't record these in real time. Whenever I get into my uh, my real busy season, I end up grabbing fast food you know, a little bit more often than I normally do. I'm going to make a, a point to grab Wendy's the next time. Maybe a Baconator. They definitely got into the let's pile as much animal matter onto these burgers as humanly possible wars for a while when i was eating meat that was i, I like that and they always seem to use good quality stuff so uh we're, it's not like we get paid by wendy's or anything but uh it's good to know that that chain is out there that's all yeah I'm that was say. pretty funny when like mcdonald's was getting onto like the shaker salads and the chef salads and the uh what 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 kind of cheese sauce can we dip this bacon in <laughs> yeah, yeah wendy's was like <laughs> the police yeah let's deep fry the whole happy meal Box we know all. what you like. Yeah. yeah, we know what you want. Deep fried baked potato. All right, moving on to the 16th. Uh, November 16th is actually, it's one of our special holidays. It's International Tolerance Day, Bill. Fuck them. <laughs> and what do you do to celebrate International Tolerance Day? You put up with other people's <laughs> Well, as a machinist, I am used to working with tolerances. Oh, you know, I didn't even think of that potential use for that word. Yeah. I, now I wonder if that's what it means. You're getting on my last two thousandths of an inch, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to assume that tolerance in this particular case is putting, like you just said, putting up with other people's shit. (laughs) I like to think of International Tolerance Day because I'm fascinated by the the idea of the paradox of tolerance, where if you have a society that is ultimately tolerant of all viewpoints that society will eventually become intolerant because there will be intolerant viewpoints that are tolerated that will dominate and eventually eliminate the tolerant viewpoints. It's a really interesting sociological uh, thought experiment. Right. I will put up with anything but your intolerance. It's a snake that eats its own tail. I agree. Yeah. I will tolerate that, Bill. (laughs) But just this day. Okay. After that, we're going to have to argue. Because I won't tolerate you not being tolerant of Tolerance Day. Well, now seems like a good as time as any to let you know. I'm sick of your shit. <laughs> 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 All right. <laughs> Moving on to the 17th, 1934. A toy version of the Buck Rogers XZ-31 rocket pistol goes on sale. And like 2,000 people lined up outside Macy's in New York to buy them. Ah. So I guess it goes to show you that that sort of pop culture merchandising, I'm going to guess in 1934, Buck Rogers was a radio show and probably a comic strip in the paper. Yeah. Because uh, there wasn't TV yet. Yeah, or even maybe even like serialized comic books kind of a thing. I don't know if comic books are out yet in 34. I know the movies, the, the serialized film with Buster Crab, the serialized uh, yeah. shorts, didn't come out till 39. Okay. So at any rate, it, no matter what media it was that made them popular... Clearly, people wanted to have the XZ-31 rocket pistol and were willing to line up 2,000 deep to get it. The life that we've lived up to this point, Bill, we've seen Cabbage Patch dolls, Atari 2600s, Furbies, Beanie Babies. Every variation of the uh, PlayStation. uh, Right. Like, as of right now, I am still, over a year later, I am still... On a waiting list, trying to get myself a PlayStation 5 as of this recording. I might have one by now as you're listening, but 
As of this recording, I'm still on a waiting list trying to get a PlayStation 5. But you're not standing outside of Macy's in New York City waiting. Not like a crazy person, no. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, I remember the Cabbage Patch thing, but I was like, I didn't have a car back then. That was in the very early 80s. But I remember whenever Furbies were all the rage, a friend of mine worked at Walmart, and I needed a new VCR, or maybe it was a DVD player, or maybe it was a combo, whatever it was. I needed a new one. They were on sale at Walmart on Black Friday. He goes, you better get here early. You know, as soon as the doors open, run to the back of the store. Everybody's going to be there looking for Furbies. You're going to be able to run right by them, go grab the VCR, and get out of there. He goes, but watch it, because people are going to be pushing and shoving each other out of the way for these Furbies. And I said, what the hell is a Furby? (laughs) Honestly. It doesn't matter. You want a VCR, right? You got to do what I tell you. The best answer he could have possibly give, don't even bother memorizing the name because they are going to be forgotten about by next Christmas. Those Furbies, I mean, they were so high in demand that like everybody wanted them. Everybody's putting, pushing them out of the way. And they're like, oh, yeah, they learned your language and they pick up on your speech patterns. No, they don't. They just make a lot of <laughs> noise. They used to make noises to each other. If, like, if you had a bunch of them in the same area, they were all turned on. Just what I want. If you put a bunch of them together, they would like chirp and, and bleep and bloop at one another and that play off terrible. of each other. That sounds like the absolute last thing I would want. You know, I mean, obviously that's for like, you know, it was a toy for kids and parents are getting it for their kids. But I knew a lot of like, you know, teenagers and young 20 people that were like rushing to the store because they thought they were cool. I remember somebody showing me one. They're like, oh, yeah, it's a Furby. Look, you can like, if you put your finger in its mouth, you can make believe you're feeding it. And then it like goes, mmm. I'm like, you paid how much and waited how long for this? <laughs> when my kids were really little, we used to buy uh, toys for them. Well, people bought us toys for them from a company called Leap. Mm-hmm. And they were noisy toys. They had no volume control on them, but they were loud. So yeah. you could make them like play music or say letters and words and whatever. It wouldn't say swears, but you could spell out words and it would say words. And then the kids, because their kids get bored with them. Yeah. And they put them on the ground and they walk away to do something else. And you're like, oh, good. It's, the kid's finally tired. He's going to go to sleep. And then it would say, thanks for playing with Leapfrog. And <laughs> the kid would be like, oh, yeah, that's right. I was playing with Leapfrog. And it would go back and start playing with it again. Oh, and no. And f- friggin' Furbies are like that <laughs> in my mind's eye. Right. Like, if I walk away from you, don't make any noise. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to be reminded that I was playing with you five minutes ago. Now you have to like describe it to people what they are. At least Cabbage Patch Kids kind of like live on in the zeitgeist to an extent, but Furbies, right. not 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 as much. Yeah, you got to start that conversation with. Well, let me tell you about a movie called Gremlins. All right, uh, something that has lived on forever in the zeitgeist. Oh, speaking of merchandising, November eighteenth, nineteen twenty-eight. Walt Disney's first sound Mickey Mouse cartoon, Steamboat Willie, is released. And you can still watch Steamboat Willie on, like, Disney's streaming service. It, it's very prominent in their animated section. Right. Very proud of that cartoon still. Well, I mean, they should be. That's the ship that launched a thousand ships, so to speak. Yes. Yeah, it, it kind of all traces back to Steamboat Willie. I mean, it does. Disney is the global empire that it is. It's not really that great of a cartoon, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. But I mean, it's it's interesting because it really, ca- it's of its time. Right. So, and it's like, that's the second approach, right? Because didn't uh, Disney try to sell it as Mortimer Mouse first? And right. I think like, that was a silent cartoon though. Yeah. Yeah. No one likes mice named Mortimer. He's <laughs> like, fine. I'll call him Mickey. And everyone will love him. And everyone still does. 
Yep, and now there's theme parks all over the world. You know what's curious to me is, like, Disney has become way more than Mickey Mouse. And Mickey Mouse, even though he kind of, like, lives on, it's not like when we were kids. There was the Mickey Mouse Club. Right. uh, There was still, like, you know, Mickey's Christmas Carol. There was still pumping out Mickey Mouse. But there's not really a lot of Mickey Mouse like out there now is there for little little kids there is there's mickey mouse clubhouse which i I know this because my kids and my nephews and stuff used to watch it i'm pretty sure that that still airs on the disney channel which is a three-dimensional sort of cartoon thing you gotta remember that time flies dude your kids are i know my kids are 20 (laughs) yeah they're 20 now but i'm 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 still pretty sure that that a variation of that cartoon is still on because that's still the core audience, at least to, you know, you hook them young, right? You hook them on Mickey and Minnie, and then before long, they're mainline in the Incredibles, and up. Before long, they're computer war tennis shoes. And Star Wars, and yeah, and Marvel. and The Black Hole. Yeah, Disney, like, owns everything but Batman and Bugs Bunny now, Yeah, I think. give it, they, they might, by the time that this thing comes out, they might own those. They yeah. might own DC Comics by then. And uh, you know who they don't own? Because it's owned by Universal Studios in the weirdest section of the park. Uh, (laughs) November the 19th, 1959, a cartoon colloquially known, is my favorite word, colloquially known as Rocky and Bullwinkle, but it was actually called Rocky and Friends. Yeah, Rocky the Flying Squirrel and his compadre Bullwinkle the Moose hits televisions in 1959. Bullwinkle J. Moose. Yes. I love those. Those are so funny. They, and, they hold up, yeah. Yeah, they, they totally do. And Bullwinkle, you know, became like the star, even though his name wasn't actually in the show. Not the beginning, anyway. Right. The show itself was like an ensemble cartoon, too. So it wasn't yes. just Bullwinkle. It, there were bracketed ends with Rocky and Bullwinkle's adventures. And then right. there were other cartoons in the middle, like Go Go Gophers and... Fractured Fairy Tales was my favorite. Fractured Fairy Tales, yep. I was just reading a, a like a small article on Rocky and Friends show when it first aired. The animation was done like so quickly, like as fast as it could be done. Like sometimes Boris would have a mustache and sometimes he didn't. And <laughs> yeah. sometimes he would have the hat and sometimes he wouldn't and all that. And they were like, screw it, just get it out there. Like the editing was more of an afterthought than anything else, right? I, and that totally added to the show's charm. The The animator and producer of that show is a guy named Jay Ward. And he was yeah. competing with the considerably higher budgeted Hanna-Barbera cartoons that were becoming incredibly popular on TV. And the right. only way that he could keep up with them was to come out as often as they did. And Jay Ward didn't have an animation team like Hanna-Barbera did. Sure. He had like six guys and two pencils so they <laughs> to like cut corners and stuff. But it gives it a timeless quality of silliness. And it yep. forced them to focus on the language humor that's part of the show. One of my favorite, absolute favorite jokes on that show was uh, there was a football game, you know, with Bullwinkle's alma mater, what's the matter, you? Yeah. And they were doing commentary about how bad they were getting beaten. And Bullwinkle says, we'll be lucky if we lose. <laughs> Which I thought was very, you know, very clever use of the language. Did you ever see the movie? Did you ever see the live action movie with... Um, I, I did not. It was... Actually, okay. Oh, that's that's a ringing endorsement. Yeah, it was. It was well. Put it this way, it was way better than I thought it was going to be. Okay, 
Yeah. That makes sense. Jason Alexander played Boris. Rene Russo played Natasha. Uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle were both animated, obviously. Right. I believe they actually got the original voice actress that did Rocky's voice to do Rocky. Oh, uh, wow. A woman by, yeah, a woman by the name of June Foray. Robert De Niro played Fearless Leader. <laughs> yep. that, now, that wasn't the only uh, film to come out of that show. Oh, go was on. It? Was Dudley Do-Right part of that show? No, Dudley Do-Right was another J. Ward cartoon, but that came okay. later. All right, but same it was, animators. Uh, Mr. Okay. Peabody and Sherman was one of the cartoons that was in the sandwiched in the middle of the Rocky and Bullwinkle yes, segments. Yes, absolutely right, and that movie wasn't bad either. And let's wrap up the week. We'll wrap up the week with November 20th, 1982, where the host of that evening's Saturday Night Live is a seven-year-old Drew Barrymore, fresh off her incredibly huge fame breaking out from the film E.T. Oh, wow, yeah. She was only seven? She was seven. Probably not the best environment to throw a seven-year-old into. Just going to put that out there as a parent of what used to be seven-year-old children. Yeah, that's way past your bedtime there, Drew. Exactly. Boy, you beat me to the punchline on that one. But yeah, way past your bedtime. You should be sound asleep by the time that show starts. Yep. Not really that controversial because it's very well publicized that your friend of mine, Drew Barrymore, had developed quite a drinking problem by the time she was 11, which is a weird sentence to say out loud. (laughs) Well, Drew Barrymore wasn't exactly unknown in Hollywood. Her great-grandfather was Lionel Barrymore. Or John Barrymore and her grandfather was Lionel Barrymore, so she she was like a legacy. She was a legacy old school eighteen nineties to present time Hollywood family. Yeah, was it her grandfather was John Barrymore from um, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde? Then her, yeah, then her great grandfather was Lionel Barrymore, who was right, right from okay. before that, before there were even films. Right, and then her parents were underachievers. I guess <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, her dad worked at Walmart in sure. the sports section. No, he worked at Universal Studios in the <laughs> Rocky and Bullwinkle section for whatever reason. So Drew Barrymore, when she was seven, absurdly famous because of E.T. And then, like I said, a wildly publicized uh, substance abuse problem, an alcohol abuse problem going forward. Uh, she was kind of the comeback kid, though, because in the 90s with, well, like when she did Wedding Singer. Yep. With um with Adam Sandler and what was some of her other famous movies? She did a, quite a bit. She was in the the Americanized remake of Fever Pitch, yeah, with Jimmy right. Fallon, which right. was nowhere near as good as the original, but she was very good in it. She was in the Charlie's, Charlie's Angel Angels. Movies. Yep. yep, she's been in all kinds of stuff. Yep, and now she has her own talk show. I see her at the gym all the time. <laughs> wow, you must go to a way better gym than I do. Yeah, you can make an argument. I don't know. <laughs> All right, moving on to the celebrity birthdays. November the 14th, 1948. Ooh, we couldn't say this last year. Nope. King Charles the Third. Yeah, King Charles. So it's a strange thing. It doesn't roll off the tongue the way that I guess I thought it would. Give it another couple of months, it will. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. It's like adapting to anything else that you have to say, like, or, you know, the change of year when I keep writing 2022 on my checks. Right. Oh my God, it's March already. Don't you know what year it is? And <laughs> it's not that I write a lot of checks either. That's probably why. But but yes, wow, King Charles. We'll see. I mean, the guy's like in his 70s. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he finally gets a job as, the, uh, as all the memes are saying. I mean, he's stepping into some really big shoes. The, the queen won. She was a queen for 70 some odd years right. plus. 
And two, she was very charismatic, and King Charles is considerably less, less so. so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I mean, we'll see. We'll see what he does with a largely ceremonial, you know, position, and yep. how that impacts the way that the sort of British government interacts with the world and stuff. I know that they're looking at some like significant challenges with regard to like heat and electricity, sort of like we are, and it'll be right. really interesting to see if. How active a role the monarchy takes in sort of mitigating some of that stuff. Because prior to this, Queen Elizabeth II was very hands-off from the 1960s kind of on. Right. Yeah. Maybe that's kind of the way it should be. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know how to run a country. I, I, I do a podcast. I'm not even sure how to do that. Well, it's the, yay. <laughs> they're like the, the holdovers, right? It's like every other country that has a monarchy like that, they all yeah. they all modernized after World War One and World War Two. Minus Denmark, I think. And they're the ones who are like, no, no, we still got a king. See? He's a king. And people are like, yeah, great. I still have a phonograph record player that you crank. <laughs> it's not very good for stuff. The royal family, like you said, is mostly ceremonial. The prime minister is the one who controls the... Uh, right. Not so much the royal family. Right. All right, moving on to the 15th. November 15th, 1952. My all-time favorite wrestler from the... I'm not going to say the Golden Age, because that was before I was born, but, like, I guess the neon age of wrestling, the 1980s and early 1990s. Macho Man Randy Savage. Born in Florida. He's the rare wrestler that doesn't seem to have been imported from Canada. <laughs> yeah, he was uh, He was born in Sarasota, Florida. I, he is the I most Florida that. man ever, now that I think about him. I yeah. should have realized <laughs> he was from Florida. But I, I remember that from whenever he was an active wrestler... Back in the, I'll, I'll call it the golden age of wrestling because the golden age of the Vince McMahon era. How's that? Uh, okay. Um, Fair enough. Yep. Randy Macho Man Savage. He actually comes from a wrestling family. Mm -hmm. His father was a wrestler. His brother was a wrestler. Yeah. Maybe you do know this. Maybe you don't Leaping know this. Leaping Lanny Poffo. Yeah. The yeah. genius Lanny Poffo <laughs> was Randy Savage's brother. And that's the last name, too. Macho Man Randy Savage's real name is Randolph Poffo, yep. which does not roll off the tongue. It does it not does sound not. tough guy wrestler. Nope. I am surprised that I and you have made it this far into the segment without busting out a Macho Man Randy Savage impersonation because <laughs> basically everybody does that. The second you hear Macho Man Savage, somebody's going to come in with a, ooh, yeah. Oh, you know, man, it's because we defy the type that typically does this. There was a, a groundskeeper over at the Renaissance Fair that I work at who looked too much like Randy Savage really? for his own good. Yeah. And every time he walked through my section, one or more often, all <laughs> of us would go, Ain't that something, something, something. Uh, I remember when he came on the scene in WWE back when WWE was WWF. Yep. And he was he was super duper colorful compared to those who wrestled around him. It made him really stand out. He also came in with, you know, I think his wife at the time, Miss Elizabeth. It was his girlfriend. His girlfriend. Uh, but yeah, they got married behind the scenes, and then uh, and then they got married. You know, as a part of a storyline. Uh. Apparently, the story that they used to per, you know present on TV of. Uh, Randy Savage being like super protective of Elizabeth and almost like a Peter Peter pumpkin eater kind of mentality with her. Apparently, he was like that in real life, too. Oh, really? Like, oh, I hear you looking at Elizabeth. And yeah. 
I mean, he kept her on a short leash. I'm sure. Which is probably why she went out to the ring with him, because she he didn't trust her standing right. in the back room. Right. I'm not leaving you back here with all these half-making oily guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a three-fall match. I'll be gone at least 15 minutes. Yeah, before I know it, they'll be snapping into you somehow. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a figure for a leg lock. <laughs> all right, moving on to the 16th, November the 16th, 1977, actress Maggie Gyllenhaal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I now, love her. She's great. Oh, see, here's the thing. She is either one of the best actresses in the world, and unfortunately for her, every role I've ever seen her in has been an unlikable character because... I don't like Maggie Gyllenhaal. I can't stand her. But I think it's just because every time I see her in a movie, she's playing a character that I can't stand. Uh, She might be lovely. She might be awesome. I mean, granted, I haven't seen a ton of stuff with her in it. My favorite that she's in is Secretary. That's that's where I really grew to like her as an actress, was that film. I did not see Secretary. I remember my ex-girlfriend going on about that movie, and she actually kept it from me she wanted that to be a movie that her and her friends watched and i don't i don't know she had a, a weird way of going about life but at yeah. any rate um the my favorite movie that maggie gyllenhaal's in and i don't like her in it mm-hmm. is a, a real avant-garde movie called frank have you ever seen it yeah with the the guy with the paper mache head yes i like that movie that movie's weird i like that movie too that movie was weird yeah yeah and, and, she's it's, in uh, it's, and I didn't like her. <laughs> I, I had the book that that movie was based on in my hand one day, too, and didn't realize that it was it was the same. It's the same guy that wrote the book, The Men Who Stare at Goats. Oh, no wrote kidding. The, wrote the book that yeah, that Frank is based on. Yeah, that was that was a strange movie. Yeah. I, I liked and it. the only yeah. other thing that she's been in that I've seen is uh, Donnie Darko, and I didn't like her in it. <laughs> no, I, didn't, I, don't, I only saw Donnie Darko once, and I didn't love it. But I liked her in, um, in The Dark Knight. She was very good in the second... Christopher Nolan Batman movie. Yeah, I didn't like her. <laughs> well, she doesn't make it out of that one alive, so you don't have to worry too much there. Right, right. Spoiler alert. My friend actually was at a club in Miami. My, well, she lives in Miami. And she was telling me that she was at a club and Maggie Gyllenhaal was there. And she goes, and I ended up dancing next to her and with her for a little part of the night. And she was very oh, wow. nice. Yeah, That's very nice. Oh, I saw uh, she was in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. I like yeah. that movie, and I must not have liked her in it because I don't remember her being. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, uh, November seventeenth, nineteen sixty. I'm gonna. I don't use the word hero very often, Bill, mm-hmm. but I think this person is is someone who go down in in history as a hero for in American history by virtue of the impact that they've had on the way that culture has developed and how acceptance has grown here in the United States. And I'm speaking of RuPaul. I'm not even going to use RuPaul's non-RuPaul name because RuPaul's oh. non-RuPaul name doesn't matter. No. See, I like RuPaul. RuPaul trumps Maggie Gyllenhaal 100% of the time. RuPaul's a, for those of you who don't know, I don't know who that could possibly be. Maybe you're listening in the far distant future and Earth has been destroyed. And you found a USB stick floating in space. But RuPaul is an American drag queen which, and is funny as all get out and is super duper talented and amazing to watch. Yeah. My favorite thing that RuPaul ever did was acted in a film called But I'm a Cheerleader, which was about kids being sent to like a gay conversion camp. And RuPaul yeah. played a dude 
So RuPaul, who's a guy who spends his life dressed as RuPaul, is oh. in costume as a guy to be a, one of the counselors at the camp. And it was he was so goddamn funny. Yeah. Well, I don't think RuPaul sits around the house. No, I don't. Uh, I don't either, drag. But, like yeah. that's the persona uh, that, that. Yes. Whenever RuPaul's like, not, nah, I think what RuPaul's not home. Like Divine was. Divine typically wasn't going out as not Divine. Right. But I mean, RuPaul was on um, Drag Race. Yes. The uh, the reality show presenting male yep. on that show. Yes. My favorite thing that RuPaul has done, I've never seen or heard. I only heard about it, mm-hmm. but I want to find it. Apparently, there is a duet with RuPaul and Henry Rollins doing a cover of Sheik's Funky Town. I will now have to locate that as well. This so I know it exists. I heard Henry Rollins talk about it. Three things that I would definitely want to hear mixed into one thing. Uh, so yeah. one of the, the best disco songs of uh, the late 1970s. Henry Rollins is doing anything and RuPaul doing anything with Henry Rollins. I'm all for that. <laughs> yep, I'm all on board. I'm all on board. You got me. I punched my <laughs> ticket. All right. Moving on to the 18th. November the 18th, 1953. British comic book writer Alan Moore, who would probably be best known as the writer of The Watchmen. Yes. Among other things. Watchmen was his first really big comic that he did for dc comics mm-hmm. uh where he he had a lot of f- sort of full creative control over how the story went but he had a history with dc before then where he was brought on to, to close out superman before yep. john byrne took over and started to do the man of steel so he did a run of superman stories which are fantastic which end superman's story mm-hmm. he also did a bunch of uh episodes or issues of swamp thing that crossed over with some of those Superman titles that are fantastic and metaphysical and weird and really literate. And then when uh, DC Comics bought Charlton's intellectual property, he wanted to do a comic book with all the Charlton characters, and DC said no. So he just sort of adapted the ones that he wanted into the characters that are in Watchmen. He also did the V for Vendetta comic book, which got turned into a pretty good movie, and for some reason, got everybody thinking that Guy Fawkes was a hero when he definitely was not. He definitely was not, no. <laughs> uh, but he uh, also did The Killing Joke, which is a really dark, uh, really, really dark Batman comic centering around the Joker. Yes. Killing Joke is very good. Of Alan Moore's work, a bunch of films have been made of his stuff. So not mm-hmm. just V for Vendetta, which is the only kind of good one. <laughs> they also made Leave Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is not good at all. Yeah, and depending on who you talk to, Watchmen is either a really good adaptation of Watchmen, or it should never be watched by anyone. I don't know which <laughs> side of the where the world you fall on for that. Uh, I have not made it past the forty-five minute mark on that movie, and not for not trying. I have given it the old college try several times. It's uh, it's not for me, side. Jeff. Yep. So I've got the regular edition. I've got the director's cut. I've got the oh no, ex- I've watched those forty-five minutes ones. at your house. Yeah, the, and I've got the uh, super director's cut, which mixes everything together. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's I, I the one really you have like to watch in three-hour increments, right? Yeah, yes. All right, moving on to the 19th. November 19th, 1983, Kylo Ren himself, Adam Driver. I know there's a lot of hate that goes towards the Star Wars sequels, but that's because Star Wars is like professional wrestling. The biggest fans are the ones who hate everything. <laughs> it's <laughs> so, true. Uh, but I uh, I guess I'm not a Star Wars fan because I like Star Wars stuff. And I liked 
the Kylo Ren character, and I liked Adam Driver playing the Kylo Ren character. I thought he was a good character. I enjoyed his performance in that film and mm-hmm. the, the one that followed it. I, I really did. I thought of all of the actors and actresses who were in those films. Mm-hmm. He's the one that I can remember the name of. And that's not because the others weren't good. It's because his performance was that much above and beyond. Sure. So take that for what you will. But yeah, I I like him. He's going on to do sort of artsy stuff after that. He hasn't done any, like, he's not in the Marvel Universe. He's not doing any big, like, giant superhero movies or anything. He does weird little movies like The Death of a Marriage. I think that was the name of it. And other smaller things. Yeah, and he's actually... Got some really good comedic timing, too. His appearances on Saturday Night Live were fantastic. <laughs> yes. You I, saw whenever I, he did the uh, Kylo Ren undercover boss, right? Kylo Ren undercover boss. Is, <laughs> yeah, that's one of the best of the last, like, f- 10 years of Saturday Night Live for them yeah. to, to do that and adapt that. that and he was really, a really good sport playing himself, parodying his character as, yep. what's his name? It was, like, Dave. Yeah. And he's like, oh, that Kylo Ren's really cool, huh? <laughs> it's like, no, as a jerk. <laughs> Everywhere he Dave goes, he finds sucks. out nobody likes, yeah. nobody likes Kylo Ren. That was really That was funny. like one year at Comic-Con, somebody cosplayed as Dave. It was amazing. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that's so funny. Speaking of Dave's, wrapping up the birthdays, November the 20th, 1942, Super Dave Osborne, who was actually born Bob Einstein. Oh, Super Dave Osborne, the alter ego of Bob Einstein, he was a, a, a stuntman. It was kind of based on Evil Knievel, and all of his stunts on the Super Dave Osborne show just went unbelievably, horribly wrong. I remember looking forward to his segments on a show called Bizarre, this Canadian like comedy show that was imported by Sh- Showtime. I think it was Showtime. Yeah, I remember and watching back Super in the Dave 1980s, on that. Yeah, not always, but often featured a Super Dave Osborne skit. Uh, that closed out the show. Mm-hmm. And I actually remember the very first one that I ever saw, which was him driving this specially modified car that had two twin turbo and eight cylinders. It had 750 horsepower. It was all hand built. And yep. he gets into it. And then a crane just picks the car up and drops it into a car crusher that crushes it into a cube. Yep. And then the cube rolls out into the scrapyard and he's like crushed in the cube. I can remember laughing so hard at that. I probably peed a little. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was just like the arms sticking out of it, yeah. The Super Dave Osborne, like, character was super popular for, like, a hot minute, too, because there was even a Saturday morning cartoon. Remember that? Yes. Yep, I do. I'm looking at, like, a biography of him, and he kind of, like, just took that Dave Osborne character and just ran with it. They even made a movie in the year 2000, the... Extreme Adventures of Super Dave Osborne. Oh, geez, I don't even remember that coming out. But as I understand it, he was super duper funny uh, in interviews as well. When he passed away, he passed away in like, what, 2019 or something? That the, the tributes to him were all about how quick-witted he was and how funny he was. And he could do that sort of like personally de- devastating observational humor when he was sort of sparring with somebody in comedy. Sure. and. The clips that I saw of him doing that were astonishingly funny. So you definitely should go seek out his old sketches and, and his stuff because he's he's definitely good for a laugh. Yep, because his stunts would go just like like we had said. They'd go horribly wrong. You could actually compare them to... The worst song ever. All right, Jeff. Uh, what do we got today? What do we got for the worst song ever today? So, glad you asked, Bill. 
And I know it's this is a tough one because you are not a seafood fan. No. All the people that I know grew up in New Bedford. We all eat fish and chips and fried clams and clam boils and lobsters and all those things. Bill turns his nope. nose at them all. Doesn't touch them. No, and I and I was brought up Catholic, so I'd have to eat like fish on Fridays during Lent. And honestly, since I left the church, I don't think I've ever had fish and chips since then. Well, the reason I bring up the 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 virtual cornucopia of seafood as an introduction is that today's song is a novelty song from originally released in 1978. It didn't become popular for f- about four years by a band called Barnes and Barnes, and the song the song even. Thinking about it makes me giggle. It is called Fish Heads. So, Bill, why don't you play a good long clip of this one? Uh, we'll keep that to 30 seconds. Thank you very much. But <laughs> fish heads, fish heads, roly poly fish heads, fish heads, fish heads, eat them up, yum. Ask a fish head anything you want to, they won't answer, they can't talk. This song was like all over the place on MTV in the early, early days of MTV uh, by virtue of the fact that MTV had like 18 videos to show and this was one of them. It actually got a little bit of steam before MTV because they would show it on Saturday Night Live uh, one time in 1980. Okay. And the video was actually directed by Bill Paxton. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you you would know from Twister and Weird Science. Oh, I didn't know he directed the video. Wow. Yeah, he's actually in the video, too. Whenever you see somebody walking across the street to go to the mailbox, yeah, it's Bill Paxton. Oh, well, I'll have to go back and, and, and look for that. My experience with this song comes from the pre-MTV years when in what we in America, at least on the East Coast, called middle school, the most hated three years of any child's life, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I was in the school orchestra, which is, you know, we're the baddest, coolest kids in the whole school. Nerd! And, yeah, exactly. And uh, the f- the friends that I had, the viola player and the other violinist and the kid that played cello. I believe that's pronounced voila. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'll just edit that out. Oh, yeah. You mean, yeah, viola. No. <laughs> awesome. Leave that in. We're avid listeners to the Dr. Demento show, which used to air on WCOZ in Boston at like 10 o'clock to midnight on either Friday or Saturday nights. Yep. And they got me listening to it. And at the time, I had a little one-speaker radio with an AM and FM band on it. And I would sit in my room and listen to Dr. Demento in sixth grade, waiting to hear what was going to be on next. I remember hearing the song for the first time on that show. Right. And a year later, I I received a, a radio with a cassette player in it built into it. And I was able to go and record and I re- the first song that I recorded off of the Dr. Demento show was Fish Heads. So I could play oh. it for my parents and make my parents laugh. And I've had it in some form or another in- since then. Did it work? Did you make your parents laugh? Or was oh, that my God, like- yeah. Yeah, they, oh, really? no, they loved okay. it. I, they thought it was the funniest thing and encouraged me to stay up and record as many goofy songs as I could because it made them laugh to listen to them. So I recorded like hours and hours and hours of Dr. Demento songs uh, and played them for them. I, I don't have any memory of trying to like get this over with my parents, but this, this would not have flown. Mr. And Mrs. Withedal would not have been laughing at this. They would have been no. like, Oh, whatever. Interesting bits about Barnes and Barnes. One, they were friends since 
you know, since they were 14 years old, almost like you right. and I. Yeah. Um, and they used to make these like little art films. Yes. And they used to just call themselves art and art. Like they were both named art after the art film, so to speak. And they took yes. the last name Barnes from a Bill Cosby sketch where the bully in his school was called Junior Barnes. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't even mention that if it wasn't for the fact that my friend Sarah and I call each other Gunky after that same sketch. Oh, so wow. I was actually, I was like, when I was reading up on him, I was like, yeah, I remember the Junior Barnes sketch. That's where we got Gunky from. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that's funny. <laughs> yep. And one of the guys in Barnes and Barnes, his name is Bill Mummy. He was Will Robinson on the Lost in Space TV show. Yeah, he was in a bunch of Twilight Zone episodes, too, and later on went on to be on Babylon 5. Which is not a Star Trek. <laughs> Correct. I, I always thought Babylon 5 was a Star Trek spinoff, but it's nope. not. But he ended up being on Deep Space Nine as well. Yes, but uh, he was a char- He was like a one-off on Deep Space Nine. He was a, he was a main character on Babylon 5. Yeah, most of his uh, filmography is all one- and two-bit parts mm-hmm. here and there, except for um, Babylon 5. And Lost in Space. Yeah. Interesting guy. Uh, interesting yeah. interesting band altogether. And not only do they make this song and the other goofy songs that are on this record, but they, they went on to produce uh, other people's records, too. Oh, really? Yep. They produced Crispin Hellion Glover's weird-ass record. The big problem does not equal the solution. The solution equals let it be. They produced a record with Wildman Fisher. And Oh, yeah, and- we covered him. Uh, and other kinds of weirdo outsider stuff. Yeah. They're good producers and really good musicians, too. And they're still active, Jeff. Yeah. They put out an album this year. Yep. They put out an album called Pancake Dream, and they put out another album called Creepy Scary in 2019. It goes to show you that if you have the means to be able to do something creative and it not be what you rely on to eat, yeah. you can you can make <laughs> it last for a really long time. And I think that that's, that's a lot of the case. I think they make most of their money producing as opposed to selling records. But they still sell a bunch of records because they have a, a, a pretty good fan base. One of the things that we've, that we've done a lot on Worst Song Ever is focused on songs that are obviously not bad. If you listen to Fish Heads, it's not a bad song. It's well put together. It's funny. It's well layered. It features a lot of unusual instruments and instrumentation. And, and it's borderline unlistenable. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't find it that way. I found I found that I was very happily like singing along to it to without it being on anywhere for the last couple of days when we started to talk about doing this song as a worst right. song ever, and it brought me a lot of joy to to sing out these goofy lyrics. The thing is, it's a novelty song. If you're gonna right. say to me, "Hey, what do you think is better, Fish Heads or Side Two of the Abbey Road album?" I'm not gonna spend a lot of time thinking of my answer. Right. No, no, nor am I. There's a difference, I think, between when we have a song that is a, is a novelty song and compare it to Abbey Road versus something like, I don't know. Uh, moves like Jagger. Yeah, Moves like Jagger. <laughs> Photograph by Nickelback, which are right. definitely dif- more difficult to find enjoyment in, where you can find a lot of enjoyment in stuff like Barnes & Barnes output. Right. I, I think what we're talking about here is what, Dennis Miller would call the Jerry Lewis paradox, where when Jerry Lewis is trying to flip the cigarette into his mouth, I just stare at it straight face and I don't understand. But when Jerry Lewis is trying to be serious, right. I can't stop laughing. 
That's <laughs> that's what Dennis Miller said. I have a different apparent, uh, opinion of Jerry Lewis, but that's kind of like the moves like Jagger, the fact right. that they're trying to be serious makes that yes. song hilarious. Um, so <laughs> And unlistenable. But... I think that there's always a place for weird, funny stuff to sneak into the zeitgeist, depending on timing. And at the time, with MTV only having like what 180 videos or something, and them being one of them, not even yeah. it was good timing, so that this song will probably live on forever. So what was fun was I had I had said we were going to do this song, and you're like, oh, I was just listening to Barnes and Barnes today, and I was like. Okay, you mean you were listening to Fish Heads? Because I thought it was just like a one-shot, mm-hmm. one-song deal. And then I go over to Spotify, and I'm like, what, what, what? And there is a large catalog, including yeah. several best ofs. And the second song after Fish Heads was a song called Touch Yourself, which is about what <laughs> it sounds like. Yeah. And it was a fun song. Yeah. It was a fun song. A lot of these yeah, songs they're were not cool all, they're not fun. all novelty yeah. songs. I mean, Boogie Woogie Amputee is a novelty song, which is pretty funny. And their covers sure. of Beatles songs are good, like Please Please Me is real good, and yep. Linoleum is funny. But, like, again, you have to you have to be in the right mood. It's not music you can put on and go do stuff to. You kind of have to be, like, in right. the, you know, I'm going to sit and listen to this now. It's like Wild Man Fisher's like that for me. All right, and before we wrap up the show, I do have the answer to my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Jeff. Ah, that's me. I'm going to fix your little red wagon for you. All right. Uh, The question was, Radio Flyer, the company that made and was synonymous with the little red wagon toys that everybody but you had as a kid. Uh, (laughs) I had a big Just just like me with my Legos. You had no Legos. I had no Radio Flyer. That's it. I'm coming over. I'm going to bring a Radio Flyer uh, wagon, and we're going to fill up Legos and just like go around the block. I think that's a fine idea. We'll relive the childhood we never had. And we're going to run around the house with scissors later. But anyway, the question. <laughs> why were those things called radio flyers? Uh, all right. Um, this is me being logical again. Is it because they made the sleds and they also made wagons with rails? And these wagons had wheels and that's the radio part of the radio flyer? I'm just going to cut you off right there. Uh, no, uh, the company was founded in Chicago in 1917 by your friend and mine, Antonio Payson. And yes. in 1917, he thought the absolute biggest achievements that the human race had accomplished, and you can make an argument at that time, were the radio and the airplane. He thought that oh. those were the biggest accomplishments. So he called this company Radio Flyer because he thought those were just bitching. He thought it was the bee's knees. It's a good thing he wasn't building that company in 2017 instead of 1917, because he would have probably called it the smartphone supersonic jet, and still no one would know what the hell. <laughs> would have called it the Bluetooth Ninja Blender. <laughs> All right, but we will see you guys. Whoops, All right, but that is the end of the show. We will see you guys back here in roughly seven days. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, guys. everybody. A special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWBLY. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends about it. Do it now before the world comes to an end. Any minute. It's coming. Any day now. <laughs>